As Sibby mentioned, just so you know, um, I, I told him I stepped on a nail and he mocked me, right? <laughs> I think he's just bitter because I keep calling his Chevy Aveo a clown car, and so this is his way of getting back to me. Um, if you see a painful look on my face, just pretend that I am really passionate about what I'm talking about. Um, if it's painful for you to hear my sermons, at least know today it will be painful for me to give the sermon. Um, but we'll get through it somehow together. I just didn't want you to see me hobbling, which is why I was hiding behind the pulpit this whole time. Okay, we're in the last part of a three-part mini-series on baptism. As we get into that, I want to thank you all for the way that you have been humble and attentive in hearing us as we've talked through this whole thing. We've waded through some deep theological, biblical waters, and you've done so with great humility and unity, which has been our prayer the whole time going through this whole thing. Two weeks ago, we started by looking at how a young church like ours should handle theological differences. How, how do we even engage into a conversation like this? And we looked at Acts 15 and we said, how is it that people can get into passionate, robust dialogue and even debate and yet do so in a way that preserves unity and humility and joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's been our aim. Jesus Christ, those of us who have repented and believed in him, has made us a part of his family. God is now our father. We are brothers and sisters with one another. And all of that stays intact even if we dialogue and disagree about certain theological things like baptism. And so we wanted to maintain unity and preserve humility as we entered into this conversation. You've done that beautifully, and I'm grateful for that. And then with that mindset in mind, and with that sort of frame to guide our conversations, last week we started to look at what are the two biblical views of baptism? How is it that Christians have differed in their practice over this thing? Christians everywhere agreeing on the importance of baptism, and yet differing on the practice of it. And we tried to look fairly at both infant baptism and believer baptism, and then what I hope was humbly and thoughtfully uh, explain why we lean towards believer baptism at Seven Mile Road. Today then, having taken two weeks to sort of sort through some of our differences, we want to conclude our mini-series on baptism by celebrating what we have in common. What Christians everywhere can rally around and rejoice in and agree on about baptism. What its purpose is, what its meaning is, what all of us can celebrate in unity together. What is baptism and what is it about? Okay, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or whatever you want to call it are two things that Jesus commanded, gave to his church and commanded his followers to do with regularity. And throughout church history, the church, capital C, the church of Christians everywhere across time and space, have referred to these two things, baptism and communion, as sacraments. That word can sound scary to Protestant folk because it sounds Roman Catholic and so they dismiss it quickly. It's not a scary word at all. What, what do we mean when we say that these two things are sacraments? What is a sacrament? Let me, let me give you some definitions throughout church history. St. Augustine, one of the earlier church fathers, said this. He said that sacraments are visible forms of an invisible grace. Hear that again. A visible form of an invisible grace. Or the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Listen to their definition. 
Sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given to us, ordained by Christ, as a means whereby we receive the same, where we receive spiritual grace. I'll give you one more. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said that a sacrament is an outward sign by which the Lord seals to our consciences the promise of His goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith, and we in turn attest our piety toward Him. That's a lot of words, so let me summarize what they're saying. What they're getting at when they say, here's what the sacraments are, is it's a sign, it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible reality. That Jesus, in love for His church, gave to us who are flesh and blood things that we could see, things that we could touch, things that we could taste and hear that point us to things we can't touch or taste or see or hear. These outward visible signs point us to great, incredible, spiritual and inward truths. And as seals, they are the means by which we receive grace from Jesus. They convey to us the truths to which these signs point. Okay, again, many words, so let's break those down. We've been using two words that if you've been hearing me, we've said a few times. Sign and seal. Sign and seal. That the sacraments are sign and seal. What do we mean by that? I want you to hear that that's not some kind of theological language made up by pastors or people with PhDs. Those are from the scriptures. In Romans 4, verse 11, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about Abraham, he says that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So here's what that means. That, that Abraham was justified, we've said that word many times, made right with God. He was made in good standing with God by faith. That happened in Genesis 15. And then he received circumcision in Genesis 17 as a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. And so even as circumcision was a sign and seal for Abraham, baptism is a sign and seal for us who believe. Okay, what do we mean then when we say that baptism is a sign? The sacraments are a sign. Let's talk through that. How is baptism a sign? You know this because you know what signs are. What, what do signs do? Signs point to something bigger than themselves. Right? Signs are not the things themselves, but they point to bigger realities than themselves. So, for example, you're driving on the highway and you see a sign that says Philadelphia. None of you pull over and park your car and go, we've arrived at Philadelphia. Right? That would be silly. That would be stupid because the point is the sign points you to a greater reality, which is go this way and you'll arrive at the greater reality to which this sign points namely the city of Philadelphia, right? It's, it's pointing to this greater reality. Or, or you know of it as signs and logos. So you think of some popular logos. If you see a small Apple logo that looks like it's got a small bite of it taken out, immediately you think of Mac and you think of iPods and iPads. And that small little logo it, it is not the thing itself, but it represents this enormous company and all its products and so on. When you see a swoosh sign, immediately you think of Nike. 
Because not that the sign is the thing itself, but it represents, it points to this thing. It's this emblem of something so much greater than itself. I'll give you one more. On my ring finger, I wear my wedding ring. This ring is not my marriage. And yet it points to a reality that is greater than anything else I know. It points to promises that I've made and promises made to me and vows that we've made and, and covenant. It points to a, a woman that I am forever in relationship with. It points to this immense reality. And yet what I wear on my finger is a sign of that reality. A physical emblem pointing to a great reality. So likewise, baptism and communion, the sacraments, are signs. Physical signs that we can touch and taste and hear and smell and eat and, and see, which point us to great, innumerable, glorious spiritual realities. But the sacraments are also seals. They're signs and seals. The righteousness he had by faith, Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith. So what do we mean when we say that baptism or the sacraments, communion and baptism together, are seals? When we ask that, essentially what we're asking is, how do these things work? What happens to us when we eat this bread and swallow the wine or the juice? What happens to us when we go into the waters and come out of the waters? Does anything happen? How do these things work? After last week's preaching, I had a great conversation with one of you from, from the church where, where basically someone said to me, listen, am I right in saying that these things are important and they're good and they're symbols, but basically nothing happens, right? I, I mean, Jesus gave them to us so we do it, but it, it's not so much that anything happens through baptism or through communion. And we tried talking through that and said, yeah, we can understand why you might think that way. And yet the scriptures want to say that somehow these things are signs and seals. That there is something happening when we take communion, when we are baptized by faith. So what is that? How do these things work? How is baptism or the sacraments a seal? And when we start talking about that, I want you to know that there's a mystery to it. Now, as soon as I say the word mystery, that can sound like a cop-out. Ajay just doesn't know the answer, so he found the word mystery and, and tied it all with a bow. That, that's not it. I get that we don't tend to like, you and I don't like the word mystery. Because uh, one author said it this way, we in the modern Western culture, we like to take things apart, figure out the nuts and bolts, and put it back together. We want to do that with everything, we certainly want to do that with God. And so we want to systematize everything, put everything in a nice, neat chart, and show you exactly the formula for how this thing works. And yet God doesn't allow himself to work that way. And he doesn't allow the sacraments to work that way. There's mystery. Because what mystery does is it, it allows you to go, your finite mind has reached the edge and cannot anymore grasp the infinite. How is it that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? A hundred percent, not 50-50, 100% God and 100% man. How do you explain that? How do you explain that God is triune? So God is three and God is one and God is one in three. And so the one God that we worship is Father, Son, and Spirit. And somehow God the Father is in heaven while God the Son was on earth. How do you, how do you look at your scriptures and go, this is a fully 100% human book? written by human authors with their personalities and their words, 
And yet at the same time, this is a fully 100% divine book. This is God's word. There's mystery all around us. There's mystery in our faith everywhere. And nobody draws a perfect formula for how those things work. And yet you know them to be deeply true. And so it is even with the sacraments. John Calvin, let me quote him one more time. When asked about how the Lord's Supper works, what is this thing? Here's what he said. It's a good quote. He said, now if anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either the mind to comprehend or my words to declare. I rather experience it than understand it. That last line's good. I rather experience it than understand it. Can you explain all this away? Maybe not. Can you experience them to be deeply true? Absolutely. And so there's a mystery. And, and so if we can appreciate that and accept that, then let's take a moment to think as far as the edge of our finite minds will go. Let's think through what, what do we mean by the sacraments being seals, that baptism is a seal. When we, when we say baptism is a seal, here's essentially what we're saying. We're saying that God is at work in this thing. Right? There's, there's this temptation to think that when we come to communion or when we do baptism, that we're the ones that are at work. It's our faith that's being on display. We're thinking about God. We're doing the dunking. We're doing the eating. And God is sort of at the side watching. And yet with the sacraments, God is at work in them. Jesus has promised to be at work in the sacraments in a way that he hasn't promised for other things. He hasn't promised necessarily grace to you as you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He hasn't promised necessarily grace to you as you take a shower. And yet he's promised to work in these things. These are the things that he gave to the church and said that he'd be in them and with them and, and give you to them. What do we mean then when we say this? How, how is it that these things that we do, like baptism, communion, are not just empty rituals, sort of naked of any divine part? Let, let me give you an example. As I'm preaching to you, if you receive the preached word by faith, is something happening to you? Sure it is. Now, can you explain how that's happening? Is God strengthening you, nourishing you, growing your soul and your faith as you receive week in and week out the preached word by faith? Is this the means by which he is saving you, right? He saved you, we've said. He is saving you. James says that by receiving the word, we are being saved. He will save you on the day that is yet to come. And so by receiving the preached word by faith, is something happening to you? Absolutely. Your soul is being strengthened. Your faith is being nourished. You're growing in love for the Lord and, and in recognition of His love for you. All of that as you participate in this by faith. Can you measure it? Can you quantify it? Can you qualify it? Can you give a nice, neat formula for how it works? No. But, but you all know, look, if I take myself out of Jesus' church and out of the preached word for a year, my soul is weakened and shriveled for it somehow, as opposed to if I faithfully participated in it every week for a year. If I read the scriptures and have a time of devotion, somehow 
my soul is strengthened, encouraged, nurtured in a way that if I neglect those things for a year, if you receive the preached word week in and week out by faith, your soul is strengthened, your faith is nurtured, you are nourished, you're growing through them. So also through the sacraments. That if you take these things, if you participate in communion, if you participate in baptism by faith, then God is strengthening you, nourishing you, growing your soul, even through them. God is at work in them. Can you measure it? Can you qualify it? Can you quantify it? Can you give a nice, neat formula for how that works? No, there's a certain mystery to it. But does it mean that that's not any longer true in your soul? No, it is. You see, you're using your senses even now, something so human like hearing, something so simple, and yet your senses, your hearing, as the Word of God is coming to you, you're grabbing onto it by faith. And as you grab onto it by faith, Christ is grabbing onto you, and your soul is being strengthened and nourished and nurtured as you receive this through your senses by faith. So also through the sacraments. As you touch the waters of baptism, as you chew with your teeth the bread, as you drink with your throat the cup, very human, very simple, very physical, tangible things, God is conveying and communicating grace to you as you receive these things by faith. These things bring us to Christ. And they bring Christ to us. Faith is required to participate in the sacraments. And faith is strengthened by participating in the sacraments. Faith is required to participate in the sacraments. And faith is being nourished and strengthened as you participate in the sacraments. Let me give you an example that I read. When I kiss my daughter, when I grab Hannah and I kiss her, it's in order to love her, and at the same time, it's because I love her, right? Love is this intangible, glorious reality. It's not visible. It can't be touched. It cannot be seen. And yet love often requires a physical expression of that, right? I have this immaterial, invisible, inward love, and yet it finds expression in physical, visible tangible things. And so you, you can imagine that as I kiss my daughter, I kiss her because I love her, and then at the same time it's expected that that kiss will also grow my love for my daughter. It seals in my heart the love I have for my daughter. Does that make sense? I kiss her because I love her, and at the same time as I kiss her, it's expected that that kiss, that physical, simple, tangible thing, seals in my heart and renews and strengthens and grows my love for my daughter. What's a kiss? It's an outward, physical, visible, tangible sign, if you will, of an inward, glorious, tremendous reality. That kiss which she can see and feel points to things that she cannot see, cannot touch, cannot grab hold onto. And so that kiss is a visible sign and at the same time a seal binding my heart closer to her afresh and anew and again. 
The sacraments are signs and seals. As signs, they bring us to Christ and to His grace. As seals, they bring grace from Christ to us. The sacraments are not just human. So God's on the sidelines watching as we do these things, taking no part in them. Right? Nor are they just divine. That it doesn't matter if we have faith or not, as long as you throw the right formula in, God is going to work and make you a Christian just by doing them. No, there's this beautiful marriage of human and divine. That God is at work as we participate by faith. How good of Jesus. Think of this for a second. How good of Jesus to give these things to us. These commands are for our good because he loves us. When you hear baptism is a command and communion is a command, do not see those as weights. Oh, I got to do this thing. What husband says, oh, I got to wear my wedding ring? No one, only a fool, right? Because the, the husband who loves his wife would say, you, you ask these guys who are going to get married in a few months. They're dying. Put that ring on me today. I can't wait because that ring points to a glorious reality. And so our souls are anxious. Baptism, then get me to those waters. Communion, then give me that meal because it points me to truth. It points me to God. It points me and reminds me to glorious truths I cannot touch and taste and feel. Right? These simple things. Think of what Jesus gave us. Bread, water, wine. How simple and yet as we touch them, as we taste them, as we see them, we are seeing and touching and tasting the gospel and the good news of Jesus and all these glorious truths. Jesus gave us these things so that week in and week out, we might be brought back to what's most important, which is Jesus and his gospel. That's what baptism is. That's what communion is. They bring us back to what's most important, not to something tangential about our faith, something off to the side. They bring us back to the heart every time. In baptism, it's, it's like, okay, we're, we're becoming the children of God, adopted by Jesus into the family of God. Well, baptism is the front door. It's the entrance we walk into, and we walk into it once. And communion is like sitting down at the dinner table week in and week out with God and all his family every week having a meal together. Do the sacraments make us part of God's family? No. But the sacraments, the sacraments affirm to us we are a part of his family by faith. When your soul grows weak, hear me, when your faith gets weak and you wonder, is this stuff true? Do I really belong to Jesus? Is my sin really forgiven? In the weakness of your faith, Jesus gives these simple things so that as you taste them, you're reminded again, as surely as I eat this bread, so surely was his body broken for me. As surely as my throat tastes that juice, so surely was his blood shed for me. And as surely as my body needs food and drink, so surely has Christ provided himself as food for my soul, without which I would shrivel up and die. But I have him, and these sacraments lock me into those realities. What Jesus has done for you and in you is as sure as the bread you chew with your teeth. What Jesus has done for you and in you is as sure as the waters you felt or feel 
in baptism. So then what is it specifically that baptism signifies and seals? What are these mountain-like glorious transcendent truths to which baptism points us to? I want to give you three things quickly and then we'll be done. Three things that baptism points us to. I'm going to read you a bunch of Bible verses. If you have a Bible and want to turn with me, you can. Otherwise, just hear them as we go. First, baptism is about the forgiveness of sin. Baptism points us to the glorious reality that our sins have been forgiven, that our sins have been washed. In Acts 2, verse 38, the Apostle Peter The Holy Spirit has just come down on believers. Jesus died, rose again, went to heaven, told them he'd give them the Spirit, and did so just as he promised. The Spirit comes on believers. Peter gets up and preaches this great sermon. 3,000 people repent and become Christians on that day. And their question is, look, Peter, if Jesus is who you told us he is, if he's really died and we put him to death because of our sin, his blood was shed for us, what do we need to do to be saved? And Peter says in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's baptism about? Peter says it points us to the glorious reality that our sins have been forgiven. Another way that the Bible says this is that our sins have been washed away. If you go to Acts 22, The Apostle Paul is giving his testimony. He's standing before a ruler and he's giving the story about how he became a Christian. The Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, was a man named Saul who hated Jesus and hated the church and persecuted those who followed Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And yet in chapter 9 of Acts, God gloriously meets him and throws him off the horse that he was riding, saves him, grabs his heart, makes him a Christian. As he's recounting that story in Acts 22 and telling his story, his testimony, he speaks of how a man named Ananias was sent by God to encourage him and strengthen him. He's a baby Christian. He needs someone to tell him what to do. And Ananias tells him what to do in verse 16. He says, and now why do you wait? Speaking to Saul. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Hear that again. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of our sins. It symbolizes that as the washing away of our sins, making us clean. I want you to picture for a second, how would those words have rung in Saul's ears? Who saw? He had hated Jesus. And the hatred of Jesus had had stained him with sin. He he was against Christ and against God. And and then he was torturing Christians. Ripping husbands away from wives and mothers away from children. And throwing them into jail. Their cries, all the guilt of that had stained him. He had literally put Christians to death. Every time, he says... In one of his testimonies, there was a vote about whether Christians should live or die. He always cast his vote no. And all their blood had caked his soul. Like a stain he could not remove. Like dirt that clung so tightly, nothing he could do to wash it away. And then Stephen, 
This perfectly good Christian man who had done nothing wrong. And Saul watched and gave approval as they bashed his head in with stones. And that blood splattered onto his soul and heart. Sin had caked his heart. Dirt and filth from all that sin. Residue on his heart. And nothing he could do to cleanse. Think about yourselves. Think about your sin. Think about the worst sin of your life. That, that worst awful moment that if you could, you would go back and undo in a second. And think about the stain that that has left on you. The dirt of that deed. How it's caked itself onto your heart and it seems like nothing you can do can rid yourself of it. You can pledge yourself for a lifetime to do good deeds, trying to scrub it away, and you find the residue of that sin still remains. Nothing. Nothing removes it, cleanses it, eases it, softens it. And then what would it have been like for Saul to hear, rise, be baptized, and wash your sins away? that there was a blood who, that was greater than any detergent and had cleansing power, and Jesus' blood could wash all that sin away. The sin of all the people he had hurt, the sin of Jesus whom he had persecuted and blasphemed against, the sin of Stephen whom he had killed, all that sin washed away. And what good news for you, that your deepest and darkest stain has been washed by Jesus Christ. That his blood has done what none of your good deeds could do. None of your striving, none of your effort. His blood has washed you clean. This is what 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says. Just hear this verse. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Hear that again. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who are the unrighteous? Do not be deceived, he goes on to say. He'll tell us, who are the unrighteous? The sexually immoral. Anyone here ever be sexually immoral? Nor idolaters. Anyone here ever place anything over and above God and make that ultimate and live for that thing? Nor adulterers. Anyone ever be unfaithful to whom they were called to be faithful? Or Jesus, as Jesus would say, anyone ever look with lust on someone that was not yours? Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As you hear those, any of those apply to you? Greed? Theft? I think if we were honest, every one of us would have a hand up and go, that list is me, I'm in and he says, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, verse 11, and such were some of you. That's true. And such were some of us. And then it says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hear that again. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you hear that? Because of the gospel, 
There is no more stain for those of you who have repented and trusted in Christ. No sin left to mar you. No dirt left on your heart or your soul. Jesus has washed you clean. And it is to that cleansing that baptism so wonderfully points. The idea is as surely as these waters cover and cleanse you as you go into the waters, so surely... Have your sins been forgiven? Has your heart and soul been cleansed? Do you hear that? How good of Jesus to give us something as simple as water and to say as you go down into this thing and as it covers you and cleanses you, so surely has your soul been cleansed, your sins been washed away. Second, baptism is about union with Christ, union with his death and union with his resurrection. Baptism is first about the washing away of our sins. Second, it's about union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Union with Christ. This is why Jesus, when he gave the great commission, Matthew 28, he's about to go into heaven. He gives his apostles one last command. He tells them to go and make other disciples. As they do that, they are to baptize in, or as the Greek says, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized, you're baptized into a new name, into a better name. It's like you were of a different family, and then by faith Jesus adopted you and gave you a new name. So that you're not marked anymore by the name of your past. You have a new name, the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Because you've been united with Him. You've been brought into union with him. And the scriptures say that that union is specifically into his death and resurrection. We've been united with Jesus in his death. Hear these words. Romans 6, it's the passage that Elvin read for us. Just hear it again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there's the union, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. What does baptism point to? What's the glorious reality that this sign points to? That we've been buried with Christ. We've died with Christ. Romans 6 will teach, listen, you had a contract in your life which was with sin. This is all of us. Every single one of us had a contract with sin, and the, the arrangement of that contract was this, that we would keep sinning until we died. And there was nothing but death that could set us free from that contract. And then the wages of sin, Romans 6 says, is death. So we'd sin until we died, and then we'd face death or eternal separation or hell for it. And that was the contract. You could not get out of the contract until you died. You were locked to sin, bound to sin. You could do nothing else but sin. Even the good that you did was tainted with sin. You were in contract with sin. But in Christ, you died early. I already died to sin. And the contract was broken and I died to sin. You see, by faith, I was buried with Christ. I died already. The judgment for my sin has already taken place and I've already died to him. The contract has been broken with sin because I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ by faith. 
And that's what the waters of baptism point to. As you go under those waters, it's this vivid reminder that you can see with your eyes, that you can hear with your ears, that you can touch and feel that as you go under those waters, you have died to that whole old self, to sin, all your former obligations. That contract and master that was sin is no longer over you. You've died. That's what the waters of baptism point to. It's these waters that remind us of judgment. Think for a second to when you see the waters in the scriptures. If you know in Genesis the story of Noah and the flood, what does God do? All those who don't trust him, turn to him. He puts under the waters and the waters of the flood are this great judgment like a watery grave. Or us who've been studying through Exodus. What happened in Exodus 14? But the people of God were brought safely through the waters while the slavery of the people and the old masters and the old bondage, what happened? They were buried under those waters, drowned under them. Pharaoh and all his chariots underneath those waters. It became a watery grave. And so baptism says, this is your watery grave. You've died with Christ. We put you under the waters so that your old life is dead. It's this symbol that points to that glorious reality. I heard a preacher tell the story of this one man who was getting baptized, a wealthy, successful, rich businessman. He came forward to be baptized because he trusted in Christ and he was in his three-piece suit. And the, the people at the church said, you got to change because otherwise we're going to put you under the water and that suit is going to get wet. And he said, listen, this suit is a symbol of my arrogance and my pride and my obsession with wealth. This is who I was. And you baptized me in the suit because I want it dead. I want that buried. I don't want to be that man anymore. And they baptized him in his three-piece suit. Because it's this vivid picture of who I was is no more. I have died with Christ. But our union with Christ pictured in baptism is not just with his death, because I, I promise I won't hold you under there forever. I'll pull you back up. Because our union is not just with his death, it's with his resurrection. That's what Romans 6 goes on to say. In verse 3 it says, we've been united with him in his death. But verse 4, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We come out of the waters, and as we do, as surely as you come out of the waters, so surely have you resurrected to new life, and you are new. Or Colossians 2, hear this, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's why you don't stay underneath. You get pulled out to remember your old life is dead, but now you've resurrected to new life, to newness of life. This is why 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 17 will say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus has remade us by faith. He's made us new creations. We're new. My old life is gone. Who I was is gone. Now I belong to Christ. I have his name sealed over me and on me. 
Galatians 3.27, hear this word. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. The idea is that, that like an old ragged clothing, stained with dirt and sin, we take that off when we've come to faith in Christ. And now we put on Christ. We wear His righteousness. We're covered by Him. So when the Father looks at us, He doesn't see our old, tattered, stained clothes. He sees us covered with Christ. We put Him on. Baptism reminds us of our union with Christ, that we've died with Him in His death and risen with Him in His resurrection. Last one and quickly. Baptism is also about our union with the body of Christ. It's about the cleansing of our sin. It's about our union with Christ. And it's about our union with the body of Christ. Remember back to Acts 2 when Peter preaches that sermon and 3,000 people become Christians that day. Do you know what it says? Verse 41. Acts 2, verse 41, this is what it says. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? The church. That day, 3,000 people believed, they got baptized, and 3,000 people were added to the church. And if you read from verse 42 onwards, it says what those 3,000 did. They gathered together. They shared bread. They had fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They shared all that they had in common. They praised the Lord. They worshiped together. They were the church. Baptism is this glorious reminder that it's not just I come into union with God, but I come into union with all those who have come into union with God. It's like we've said so many times. We're adopted by God the Father through Jesus Christ. But that immediately means all of God's other children are now our brothers and sisters. And baptism says we've been united with Christ and added to and united with those who've been added to Christ. We're one. We're one. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, last verse. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So in baptism, not only are you pledging faith to God and God pledging salvation to you, but you're pledging commitment to one another. I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. This is signed and sealed in baptism. This is why the sacraments, like the Lord's Supper and baptism, were given to Jesus' church. It's to the body of Christ, to a local church like ours. This is why if three of you go outside and grab some bread and wine, it doesn't suddenly become communion. And if one of you dunks someone into a pool, it doesn't suddenly become baptism. Because these things were given to the body of Christ so that we might come into union with God and come into union with one another. This glorious reminder that it's to Christ and his people that we have become one. So baptism is about the forgiveness of sins, the washing and cleansing of sin. It's about our union with Christ, that we've joined him in his death, and we've joined him in his resurrection. And it's about our union with one another. I've committed myself to you. You've committed yourself to me. So then as words of application, here, here would be my plea to you. 
have these glorious realities to which these simple signs point become true? Are they real for you? Has your soul been cleansed? I'm not asking if you come to church and check off a box. I'm not asking if you do religious things like baptism and communion. I'm asking in your soul, has it been cleansed? Do you walk around still with stain, carrying on the dirt of your sin, of misdeeds from your past? Then today would you come to Christ and by believing in Him, allow His blood to wash you clean. And if you have come to Christ, would you silence every lie of the enemy that tries to convince you you're still stained? And would you tell him, no, I believed. My sins have been washed away. That's been sealed in my baptism. I'm affirmed that God has washed me clean and there is no more any dirt on my soul. I have in fact put on Christ like a new and better garment and when God the Father sees me, He sees me in the righteousness and perfection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Has that reality become true for you? And has the reality of union with Jesus in His death and union with Jesus in His resurrection become true for you? Are you still in a contract with sin that till death do you part, you will be in sin? Or have you died early by believing in Jesus Christ and Him breaking the power of sin over you? It is no longer your master and you've resurrected to new life. It's not just your sins were forgiven, but you were given the Holy Spirit and power to live a new life. And those of you that have repented and believed, are you walking in the newness of life that Jesus gave you the Holy Spirit to live in? Do not live anymore towards your former obligations and master. It's no longer your master. You have a new master. And the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is now in your heart and in your soul, giving you power to walk in newness of life. And have you been united with Jesus' body? Some of you are visitors, maybe at some local church where you're a part or if you're here to this local church, are you dabbling in and out, sort of attending, sort of a spectator, sort of a consumer, buying religious goods and services on Sundays? Or are you in, saying to these brothers and sisters, God is my Father, and you are my brothers and sisters. I commit myself to you. You commit yourself to me. These things have been signed and signified and sealed in our baptism. Jesus has given us these simple things. Today, if you know Jesus Christ, would your soul even now be anxious to come to this table? That as you eat this bread and you feel it in your teeth and on your tongue, so simple, so physical, that you would be reminded as surely as you chew that, so surely has Christ given his body for your forgiveness. And as surely as you drink that, so surely has Christ shed his blood for you. And it's as true as the food and drink to which we will now come. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we give you thanks that in your great love, you gave to us who are simple and who are prone to weakness of faith, these simple signs, these sacraments, by which we are reminded of profound and glorious and weighty truth. 
Our faith is weak, but your truth is like a mountain, like a bedrock, like a, a, a firm foundation that cannot be shaken. And though we struggle sometimes to believe if these things are true, if they've happened in our souls, you've given us even this day communion and given us baptism to remind us that these things are true. I pray now that you would help us to respond to your word. Holy Spirit, you know what you need to say to each person. You know where each person is and you know what you need to minister to their heart. So we ask you to do that more than what human words can say. We pray that you would call us to obedience. We pray that you would call us to participate in these sacraments by faith, that we might receive great benefit for our souls. Do more than we knew to ask. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did break his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, to unite us with him in his death, and with his glorious and powerful resurrection to make us one with him and with his people. We are not alone, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.